You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us take our Bibles and open them together to Genesis 39, beginning at verse 1, which is also our text for this afternoon. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph every day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is 
something in this life that we all need and that none of us looks forward to. Do you know what it might be? What do you need but not really want? Kind of a riddle, right? Now, riddles are kind of difficult, so perhaps you already want to give up. Well, the answer, beloved, is discipline. Discipline refers to a training process. It has to do with the shaping of character. It also has to do with how we handle disappointment, obstacles, challenges, even suffering. Its aim is the development of proper character, conduct, obedience, insight, maturity, and so forth. Yes, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. It mentions it often, either directly or indirectly. Why, there's even a whole book in the Bible devoted to the topic of discipline, the book of Proverbs. And as well, in the New Testament, there is also a certain book and a certain chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, where we read things like, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Or God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. Or no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so you can say, beloved, that discipline is a much-needed thing if we are going to develop proper God-pleasing character and in a God-pleasing manner. And that, beloved, I think applies to all of us. It also applied to Joseph. He too needed discipline if he is to develop into a great leader and future deliverer. And so where does he get it? Well, as we saw last time, it appears that he won't get a lot of discipline in the tents of Jacob because in the tents of Jacob he's rather favored and special, if not outrightly spoiled. If he's going to get discipline in his life, he's going to have to get it elsewhere. To get it, God will need to direct his life into the valleys and into the shadows. Yes, and that is also, beloved, what we saw happening at the end of chapter 37. Where Joseph is seized by his brothers, stripped of his multicolored robe and thrown into a cistern. And for a while, his very life hangs in the balance as the brothers debate furiously as to what to do with him. In the end, he's sold into slavery and carted off to Egypt. The process of discipline in Joseph's life has begun. And now we ask ourselves, how does it continue? And how does it unfold? Well, turn with me to chapter 39. I preach to you, God prospers and disciplines Joseph in Egypt. And we're going to see he's blessed as a slave. He's betrayed by a wife. He's jailed by a master. Well, beloved, Genesis 39, which is our text this afternoon, opens, and we are in Egypt with Joseph. We 
don't know. We're not told how long the journey took. It may have been a matter of days. Probably it was a matter of weeks. What we do know, however, is that the journey to Egypt could not have been pleasant. Joseph, who was used to a life of attention and luxury, went there as a slave and as a piece of merchandise. And once he gets to Egypt, things do not get any better. He would have been bound, he would have been fed very little, he would have been clothed rather scantily. Now, no doubt his days were filled with confusion, frustration, bitterness, and anger, and a lot of other negative emotions. Psalm 105 says that God sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons. And just how long his captivity under the Midianites lasted, we again are not told. Interestingly, we are told that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, and we also know that he was 30 years old when Pharaoh promoted him to viceroy of all Egypt. And we know that before his promotion, he spent two years in prison. That leaves 11 years. How many of those were spent at the hand of the Midianites? How many of those were spent in Potiphar's household? Again, we don't know. But what we do know and what we can say is that for 13 years, Joseph was in the school of discipline proper. For 13 years, God trained him. First, he trained him probably rather briefly in the school of the Midianites, as we said. And that school lasted until one day when he was brought to the slave market somewhere in Egypt and put on display an upper auction. No doubt, as was the custom, he stood there naked. No doubt he was expected by all future buyers. And at last the bidding started and Joseph was bought. He was bought by a certain Potiphar, who is described as the official of Pharaoh and as the captain of the guard. In other words, Joseph is bought by a man of some importance, power, and stature. And so next begins his training in the house or school of Potiphar. Most likely around ten years. And in many respects, as we read in Scripture, they appear to have been good years. True, on the one hand, Joseph remained a slave during those years, and at times he must have struggled with his his status. But on the other hand, he made great progress in the household of Potiphar. First, he was but an ordinary slave. Then he became Potiphar's attendant. And finally, he became the steward over all of his household. It would appear that Joseph made no mistakes and went on from success to success. Sometimes we say of a certain person, everything that he touches turns to gold. Well, in a way, that's the way it was with Joseph. Potiphar noticed him, Potiphar promoted him, Potiphar trusted him, Potiphar handed it all over to him, Potiphar was enriched by him. Everything that Joseph suggested, recommended, promoted, turned out to be right on the mark. 
This slave could do no wrong. This slave was like having a good luck charm. And of course, we do not believe in luck. So what accounted for Joseph's great success? Now, the Bible doesn't leave us to speculate about that. Time and again, it gives us the reason for Joseph's success, and it is God. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian. The blessing was of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had. Why, Joseph's success was so obvious that even Potiphar must have started to ask questions about its source. Verse 3 says that when his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in all that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. How did Potiphar know that the Lord was with Joseph and not some local god or goddess? Well, Joseph must have told him. He must have made it clear to him that it was God who was with him and that he was the true and the real source of his success. Joseph labored faithfully as a slave in Potiphar's house and the Lord blessed it all. Now what does that tell us? Obviously it tells us that Joseph is the object of God's special care and attention. But remember the bigger picture. For this is not simply a nice, little, isolated tale that we find somewhere in the Bible. No, God is working on his great redemptive program. And as we saw last Sunday, part of that program includes the fact that his people are destined to go into Egypt. And they're going to stay in Egypt for 400 years. And then they're going to be led out of Egypt. In other words, the way is being planned here for the people out of whom one day will come the great Savior of the world. But for that people to be in the land of exile and to be safe there, preparations need to be made in advance. An advance party needs to be sent to make things ready. And who is that advance party? It's one man. It's Joseph. Psalm 105 again says that God sent a man before them. Joseph is the scout, the pioneer, the preparer, the advance party. He is the man. Yes, and now this is behind the great success of Joseph. This is the reason why ultimately he prospers in Potiphar's house. There, Joseph is in training. He learns to listen. He learns to lead. He learns patience. He learns to plan and to organize. He learns to shoulder responsibility. In short, he learns much that will stand him later on in good stead. God is training him. God is training him for the sake of his people. Now, of course, beloved, that's nice to know, but what does it have to do with us? 
Well, I think it shows us, for one, that the salvation to which we are heirs today is a great, deep, wonderfully planned, and marvelously worked out redemption. That's the great lesson. But you know, in that great lesson, there are also lesser lessons as well. And one of them is that there is this connection between working faithfully and success. If you, as a Christian, work as a Christian, if you do whatever task or job has been assigned to you and you do it well, then God will bless it in one way or another. You know, interestingly, the Apostle Paul gives some advice to the slaves of his day. And you know, it's advice that's worthy of consideration by all of us. He, he writes, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not men because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. You know, some time ago, an employer in our area said to me that that he thought the world of Canadian Reformed young people that he employed. He wasn't Canadian Reformed himself, but he employed Canadian Reformed people. He even said that he discriminated by hiring them before others. Now, why did he do that? Well, he said because of the quality of their work. They were hardworking. They were honest. They could be trusted. They respected their boss. In short, it would appear that there are any number of young Josephs and, excuse me, Josephines, even in this congregation. And you know, that's great to see. That's a compliment to you young people. It's a tribute to you parents and teachers. But above all, it's an honor to God. And it's also the way of blessing and reward. Keep on working well, all of you, young and old alike, and know that the Lord will see it And be assured that the Lord will bless it. So, beloved, all is going well for Joseph in Egypt. Perhaps slavery is not so bad after all. But then we come to verse 7 and everything hits a snag. It says there that after a while, in other words, after some time, perhaps after some years, his master's wife took notice of him. Why did that happen? Well, because it says at the end of verse 6, now Joseph was well built and handsome. Only, of course, she did more than simply notice him. She also issued an invitation to him, come to bed with me. Joseph, however, refused. 
What reasons does he cite? Well, the first one has to do with his master. And it relates to the fact that his master trusts him, and Joseph is not about to betray his trust. He's not about to bite the hand of the man who has fed him and made him second only to himself. No one is greater in this house than I am. Thanks to my master. And the second reason, he says, has to do with decency. Joseph says to her, you are his wife. And that's a loaded statement. And by it, Joseph is saying, you do not belong to me. You are not married to me. You belong to my master, and I will not break up his marriage. And surely here is a fitting word for all who play fast and loose with their marriage vows and with all that television programming today that turns adultery into a game and not what it truly is, namely a betrayal. But then, beloved, if the first reason for saying no to this immoral woman is trust and the second is decency, the third is God. Joseph says to her in verse 9, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You know, Joseph may be far from home. He may be living in a foreign land called Egypt. But he knows full well that his God is not some local deity with restricted vision. Now he sees himself as the servant and the son of the only great God of heaven and earth. The God who sees everyone, everything, everywhere. And this God abhors all wickedness. To jump into bed with his lady is above all an act of wickedness and a sin against God. And that's the bottom line. And that, beloved, should be the bottom line, not just for Joseph, but for all of us. You know, today there's a plague raging in our society. It's a plague of immorality and adultery. You read about it in your newspapers, you see it on your television, you hear it from your friends, from your co-workers. It's, it's everywhere. People playing around, treating sex as if it's something common and casual. There's no more value than an article of clothing. And people treating marriage vows like dirt. They're not worse the paper they're printed on or the ceremony in which they were uttered. Why, I dare say there are animal species more loyal to their mates than a lot of human beings today. Today we have an oversexed society. And tomorrow, well, if the Viagrads keep coming along, it'll be even worse. And all of this means, beloved, as Christians, young and old alike, that it's It's time we take a stand. 
It's time to take a stand or else be swept away by a tsunami of wickedness. Indeed, we need to be like Joseph. There's a book and a saying, dare to be a Daniel. Well, I would say to you this afternoon, dare to be a Joseph. Dare to say yes to decency. Dare to say no to immorality and adultery. And dare to call it what it is, namely a sin against God. Is that easy? Is that going to be popular? No. Look at Joseph again. He... He says no, and what happens? Well, a full-scale attack is launched against him. Day after day, Potiphar's wife is after him. She tries to entice, she covets, she obsesses. And then one day we're told in the Scriptures it all comes to a head. One day all the servants are outside. She sees Joseph. She grabs hold of him in his cloak and she tries to drag him into her bed. And Joseph, however, resists and flees. And in the process, he leaves his cloak behind. He seems to be having a lot of trouble with cloaks. But in the meantime, Potiphar's wife has failed again. She's a woman scorned. And there is, they say, nothing in the world like the vengeance of a woman scorned. She screams rape. Later on, it turns out to be a case of so-called attempted rape. She frames Joseph. She accuses him to her servants. And next, she accuses him to her master. And what is a master to do? Now, the original text gets very interesting here. For the words, he burned with anger can be interpreted as he burned with anger, not just at Joseph, but at his wife. The meaning is somewhat uncertain. And that may very well be an indication that Potiphar knows that his wife has a rather loose reputation and that she's a rather scheming and conniving woman. But now when he is confronted in this kind of a public way, what is he going to do to save face? He's trapped. Regrettably, his favorite slave has to go. Of course, you may wonder about that interpretation. And you may wonder about the idea whether the anger of Potiphar was more directed at his wife than at Joseph, but but look at what happens to Joseph. What normally happens to a slave who is supposedly charged and caught fooling around with his master's wife and even trying to rape her? Well, it's off with his head. But Joseph's head stays on his shoulders But that's about the only thing that stays. For the rest, he's sent to prison on trumped-up charges. And now what? Now when he's in prison, what does he do? Does he rant and rave against Potiphar's wife? Does he lash out against God for allowing this great miscarriage of justice? 
Does he grow cynical and bitter in prison? No, beloved. Jail, believe it or not, jail becomes another opportunity to serve. And before long, Joseph, who once was running the household of Potiphar, is running the jail. Verse 22 says, So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. Now who is responsible for that miraculous turn of events? Is it Joseph, the nice guy, the nice-looking guy, the able guy, the organizing guy? Not really. The real answer for his success in prison is, you guessed it, God. Verse 21, the Lord, again, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Success in prison. Imagine. Imagine that. But why? Why in prison? But well, surely, beloved, it has everything to do with the fact that as human beings, we so often learn best when we suffer most. You know, good times, success, promotions, prosperity, freedom, they're all nice, but they have this tendency to go to our heads and to inflate our ego. But on the other hand, opposition, temptation, struggle, sorrow, sickness, injustice, and so many other negative things, those are often the times when we grow best, grow deepest, and grow wisest. Joseph obviously needed times like this. And I dare say, the same goes for us, for you and I. We don't seek them. We pray to be kept from them. But in so many ways, you and I need tough times. Because that's when we really learn, really grow, really mature. Those are the times when perspective is put in our lives, when character is instilled in our souls, and when there is steel in our wills. And faith, maturing faith in our hearts. Joseph needed such times if he was going to lead Egypt. And we need them too. And one more person needed them. You know who? Christ Jesus himself needed them. Now that, I realize, sounds almost like blasphemy, doesn't it? Since when did Christ Jesus need suffering? 
Was he not always fit and perfect in every respect? No, beloved. Also he needed suffering and hardship. Read the remarkable words with me of Hebrews chapter 5. Let's look at that for a moment. Hebrews 5. Verses 8 and 9. And notice what it says here in Hebrews 8, or Hebrews 5, the verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Notice the words, He learned obedience. And that means there is a sense that He was not born with it. It wasn't automatic. No, He learned it. And notice too, there is a sense in which He was made perfect. It was part of a process. It took time, effort, and struggle. Those are deep words, mysterious words. But I think they're also words of encouragement for us. Joseph learned obedience through suffering. Even Christ learned Obedience to suffering. And then why? Why should it be any different for any of us? Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you also for your faithfulness and your dealings with your people in the past and how all of that testifies to us today and teaches and reminds us as well. Father, we have been reminded how you disciplined Joseph, how you shaped and molded him long ago. And we know, Father, that he's not the only one that you shape and mold. This is something that you do in the lives and the hearts of all of your people. Also us today. And so, Father, when the tough times come, when the difficulties arise, when the challenges are there, cause us not to despair, but cause us to see them as opportunities to grow and to mature and to increase in service. And so, Father, we pray, be with us, bless us, strengthen us always as your children in your service. 
to your praise. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.